to go where it needs to go. There we go. We've talked about how the church is the bride of Christ. There's this imagery in scripture where it talks about God's people being prepared for him and chosen by him and loved by him as a bride. And there's a couple of passages in scripture that lead us to believe that. However, we know, we've seen that the church doesn't always work well and it does things that are not always godly and it causes the world to doubt uh, that faith in God has much uh, uh, efficacious outcome. And so it's kind of like you look at a bride that's an ugly bride, and that's an oxymoron. I mean, who, who would think of that? A bride is beautiful. They, they go through all kinds of things in preparation to make themselves appealing and wanted. And they are wanted by the bridegroom. You know, it's interesting, no matter who the bride is, somebody has asked them to marry them. Isn't that amazing? No matter who that woman is that is about to be given in marriage and about to be joined, they have been pursued and wanted and desired and loved by someone. And usually more than just one someone. And so it's just interesting to me because sometimes I sort of shrug my shoulders and think God could have done a better job of making a plan to reach and change and fill this world than by doing it through us. But that's his choice. And so I want you to think about this and a couple of things that help us focus our thoughts. First is that God chose the church for his purpose and for his glory. This is what he chose to do the work of his kingdom. This is the chosen vehicle to get it done. And even though at times I doubt his wisdom, I am reminded that his ways are not our ways. So he knows something about us that we don't even know or appreciate about ourselves. And that's not only true of us together, that's true of each one of you individually. And we also know, though, that the church isn't very pretty. It is often disorganized. I have to tell a real quick story. I was on a I was on a ski lift in Colorado years and years ago, going up the mountain. It was cold, the snow was blowing, and I was on that ski lift with, with a guy that was a, a bit of a mentor to me, Ray Ellis. And Ray was a pastor before me. He's retired now and had a tremendous ministry in our denomination. And Ray and I had taken a ski lesson together because we weren't very good at skiing. And the ski instructor at the end of the lesson said, hey, I'll go up on the mountain with you guys and ski and give you some more pointers and so we were riding up the ski lift, and we get on the lift, and as soon as we leave the ground and you're trapped, he says to us, okay, so what do you guys do? And then uh, Ray, who's just a bold Christian without skipping a beat, he goes, we're both pastors. And it was too late. I mean, he was now 20 feet in the air. He had nowhere to go, and so we're on that ski lift. And he goes, oh, oh, okay. And then he says, well, I'm not really into organized religion. And about the time he said that, the ski lift stops, you know, and the gondola just kind of swings back and forth. And I just smiled and I thought, oh, God is in control here. And before I could answer him, Ray goes, nor am I. We really, what we do is more like disorganized religion. That was his answer. And, and he said, and I just started, I just burst out laughing. And so then we started talking about what it's like as us, for us as pastors to try to lead the church, to try to lead 
people who come together in this haphazard, sloppy way and form a church and and how it doesn't go well all the time. And we told them, we said, you know, everybody who talks about organized religion, the, the, we're immersed in this and we think it's pretty disorganized and messy and painful and embarrassing and all these things. But we said, that's what makes it great. By the time the lift started and we got to the top of the mountain, you know, we come sliding off the ski lift and start down the slopes. The ski instructor, he stops and he goes, you guys have got me thinking about a lot of things I've never thought before. And uh, we just sort of praised God and spent the morning skiing with him and um, talking about how the church isn't very pretty. (laughs) But we didn't stop there, but we were talking to him about how God's work is the work of transformation. And he takes messed up, broken, damaged, wounded people. He brings them together. He binds them up. And then he calls that his body, which is broken for you. And... uh, So the church isn't pretty, but it's in the process of getting a pretty amazing makeover. And that's what we're going to focus on today. You see, when we look at the church and we understand the church isn't what it should be or it doesn't look as appealing as it could and it's not quite as impressive as it should be, there are people who would look and go, yeah, I'm not interested uh, you know, I've been watching over the last couple of days. We have a we have a church that's coming to our neighborhood. If you just look right behind the Sam's Club over here, a mile west of us, there's a big new church being built, and it's impressive. And they're spending millions of dollars to do that. And somebody asked me, "Well, does that bother you? They're kind of moving into the neighborhood, and they're going to become, you know, a pretty dominant force. They're spending a lot more money than we could." I said, "It doesn't bother me." I said, not only does it not bother me, but I know the people in this side of town and they need more churches. They need more of Christ. And that is not my enemy. I know the enemy. I've seen the enemy and the enemy is a lot uglier than that. (laughs) So we may think that the bride doesn't look so great, but let me tell you, the enemy looks even worse. But the thing is that Over time in the church, we see people and they function in ways that just are not pretty. They just do not look like godliness. A book that I read years ago, and some of you have probably read it, it's it's a fantastic book on uh, the discipled life and following God. It's called The Life You Always Wanted by John Ortberg. And John Ortberg in that book, he starts the book by talking about a guy that was in the first church he pastored, a guy named Harry. And I hope he changed the name because I would think that if you were named in a book that became a national bestseller as a bad example, you'd be pretty embarrassed. But he talks about Harry and he said that, you know, he went to this church and this guy, Harry, had been there forever. He had been there from the time the church had started kind of a thing. And and Harry had been on every committee and every board at every meeting. And Harry was just a grumpy, disagreeable guy. And so when he got there and he met Harry and Harry, as he introduced himself, began to tell him right off the bat things that were wrong with the church. Welcome, pastor. We're glad you're here. Now you need to know what a mess we are. And he just started, sort of started to lay out all this dirty laundry. And what he found out over the next couple of years is that Harry was a really negative guy, and Harry was the kind of guy that complained about everything that seemed like it was in any way out of shape. And Harry was quick to point out that 
you know, this is wrong with the church and that is wrong with the church and that's why people aren't coming here and that's why people aren't finding Jesus and that's why the world is doomed. And finally, Pastor John turned to him and said, you know, Harry, I think the problem with the church is you. You spend all your time looking at all the bad stuff and when you see it, you point it out and you say, that's not good, that's pretty ugly. You know? And I know that we have to be honest with ourselves about what's happening in the church. But Harry was just a negative, grumpy guy and people just avoided him. They got to where they wouldn't be around him. And so finally, he got Pastor Ortberg got so frustrated, he went to uh, the leadership group there in his church and he said, we got to do something about Harry. He's driving everybody crazy because everything is bad. He's driving people away because everything is bad. This is not the kind of church people we want. And their response was, well, that's just the way Harry is. That's just Harry. And then Ortberg said, I realized in that moment, it wasn't just a problem with Harry, it was a problem with the church. Because the church had accepted and adopted this this attitude, this mentality that said that people come to church the way they are and they do not change. They just stay there. And so Harry came to church a broken, hurting, negative guy and he just said a sinner's prayer and shifted his, his uh, allegiance to the, from the world to, well, I'm now serving Jesus Christ. I'm still a negative, broken, grumpy guy, but I'm a negative, broken, grumpy, grumpy guy for Jesus now. And I just want to tell you, Jesus doesn't need any more of those. He's got enough. You and I included. And so Ortberg said, you know, the problem, I guess, isn't with Harry. The trouble's not with Harry. The trouble's with us because we kind of expect that Harry just comes to church, but he stays the same guy. You've heard it. I've heard it. People say, the problem I have with church is that people are all a bunch of hypocrites. And I hear that and I go, yeah, you're right. Because we profess the highest ideals. We think Christ makes the greatest difference in the world, but we often, often fall short of living our lives that way. The problem with Harry was the problem of the church, that the church didn't believe that Harry's life could be changed. You see, the church is a sum of its people with one additive. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit to transform people's lives. And when that additive is removed, there is nothing appealing about the church. There is nothing of intrinsic value. And everybody who says they're all a bunch of hypocrites have probably encountered a church where the Holy Spirit is not allowed to work in people's lives. And they are right. There's nothing attractive about that. And we are tempted to make the mistake that we just say, well, you know, that's the way it is. We're just, we're just busted up, messed up people who gather together and we become a collective, a corporate, messed up group until we put that right additive, that one element that makes a difference. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. I want to remind you of a couple passages of Scripture. The first is from Revelation 19. And this is where we see... 
through the eyes of John, who's receiving this revelation from Christ about what is possible and what is going to happen. And this is what Paul writes about the body of Christ. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. So there's, there's that bride imagery. And his bride has prepared herself. His bride being Christ. She has been given the finest of pure linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. So here's here's John. And he has this image of what the church is and is going to be like. And this angelic being that is taking him around and showing him around what is going to come says this is the bride and this bride is dressed in these beautiful fine linens which is why brides dresses today are white but we're reminded through the apostle john that the good deeds of God's holy people are what make them beautiful. And I would suggest to you that a church that falls short of that, that is more ugly than beautiful, it's because of what they do and how they conduct themselves. And that's a challenge to me. Let's not stop there. Let's look at another passage. Uh, Sorry, it goes on. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then he added, these are the true words that come from God. Then uh, this one I wanted to add. Galatians chapter 6, 14 through 16. As for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. That's what Paul says. But he doesn't stop there. It doesn't matter whether you have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether you have been transformed into a new creation. I should have changed the color on that last sentence. What counts is whether you have been transformed into a new creation. And then he goes on in verse 16. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. So there's this sense that Paul has that, you know what, this is new, this is different. Of course, Paul's talking about being Jewish or being Gentile and coming into faith in the body of Christ. And he goes, you know, you're the new people of Christ because you are being transformed into a new creation. You're not like you were. You're not Harry. You're somebody else now. So here's what I want to remind you, and I'm going to use a few passages of Scripture to do this. First, I want you to put into your heads that what God does in people is his work of transformation. And that is important to us here. That is a critical piece of what we believe about God and what he does in the world. It's a critical piece of our tradition where we, coming from our line of faith, have emphasized holy living being possible through the power of God's Holy Spirit. And so that means that life changes a little bit. And over time, little bits add up and it changes us 
completely and redefines us. God works transformation in people's lives. So I say that because I want you to think about this. When you look around at our church and you see somebody whose life is a little bit disordered and chaotic and painful and broken and wounded, because I just want to suggest to you that God is doing a work of transformation in their lives and we need to be about identifying it and empowering it. And we're reminded in Scripture that God does this transformation in multiple ways. And so I want to point out a few ways to you how God does this. How God actually changes us from being just as dirty and disgusting as the world to being that beautiful white linen clad bride. And the first way is that he does it by renewing our minds. He changes the way we think. You see... What we do flows from what we have thought and processed. And so if we want to change our actions, we got to change the way we think about things. And there are all kinds of ways that we can go through this and and understand how this works. And there are people who have devoted their life to figuring out how we can have our thought process changed so that we can change what we do. This has to do with every area of our life, whether it's how we eat food or how we exercise a body or balance our checkbook and moderate our spending or how we interact with people who are difficult. I mean, we can take it in any area of our life. If we want our lives to change, we have to change the way we think about the circumstances that we're in. And Romans 12.2 says this, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Or in the uh, older NIV used to say, by the renewing of your mind. Then you will learn how to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So I just want to suggest to you that if you think that, man, that what the work of transformation in somebody's life has got to happen by this, somehow this spiritual anointing that just comes in and, and completely remaps their heart, it does, but it also has to do with the way we think. The way we process and understand what is around us, the way we perceive the reality of the world and the reality of the church has everything to do with how we're being transformed. And one of the mistakes we as humans often make is we make the mistake of thinking that we have reached our limit before we actually have. We tend to think that this is all I can do, I can't do anymore. And our minds set more of a limit than our bodies or our time or our intelligence or our energy does. So if we can get our minds past the limitations that we believe, that we perceive, we'll be capable of far more than we know. I'm fascinated, some of you know this, I'm fascinated by, by the men in our military who pursue uh, the, the highest levels of training in our special forces. And I'm particularly fascinated with Navy SEALs because these guys take on and choose to do things I would never do. Even when I was a young man, I would have gone, yeah, I'm not doing that. They just, they do incredible things. And I have read quite a bit about 
how they get to this point where they can do these kinds of things. One of the things that fascinates me is they go through this training, they call it drown-proofing. Because Navy SEALs spend a lot of time in the water. And drown-proofing is a way of training these men to be in the water but never panic over running out of breath. And so they, they go through this thing, and it looks rather innocuous, but we're not doing it. So if we watched a video of it, it, it seems simple, but we're not doing it. If we were doing it, it would be panic-inducing. And what they do is they tie them up. They bind their feet, and they bind their hands behind them, and they put them in a swimming pool that's well over their head. And then they tell them, you take a breath, and you allow yourself to sink to the bottom. And then when you get to the bottom, you push back up, get your head above water, take a breath. And now you're going to do that for the next two or three hours. Now what happens is at some point you start to get really tired. And when you get really tired and you take a breath, or you take a breath at the wrong time, or you take a small breath and it's not quite a bit, uh, quite enough, then you get to the point where anxiety begins to kick in. And let me tell you, there is nothing in life that produces as much anxiety as not being able to breathe. If you've never experienced that, let me tell you, that will get your attention quicker than anything. So when you're underwater and you can't breathe, you begin to think, I've got to do anything possible to breathe. And if you start to flail, if you start to move around in other ways, you're going to run out of enough energy and enough time and you will not breathe. And so they train them, just keep doing this. Just sink to the bottom, be patient, focus, and think, as soon as I get my head above the water, I get another breath. And so for two or three hours, they do this, just bobbing up and down, get a breath. And it has very little to do with learning the physicality of swimming. It has everything to do with learning the mentality of don't panic, don't give up, stay focused. And I would suggest to you that there are some spiritual lessons to learn there. Because it may not be that we're in a swimming pool in actual water, but in life we reach points where we think we're overwhelmed. It has overcome us. But you know, the prophet Isaiah got this vision and he wrote this down where he said, you know, even when I go through the deep water, the water will not overwhelm me. Even when I go through the deep things in life, even when I'm in the most stressful places, if I think and move in a focused way, I do not have to be destroyed. I don't have to die here. The behavior and the customs of the world that I think Paul was talking about in Romans is that, oh my goodness, things are getting bad and we just lose it. We just kind of flip out and we go, I can't, I'm, I'm done, and we panic. And some of us have been there. Maybe we were even there this week. Last week. At least we're a week out, right? But here's the thing. That's the way the world works. The world is, oh my goodness, I'm overwhelmed and I will do anything. And we start flailing and we start doing things that are unwise and not focused. But someone whose mind has been transformed will think through these things and say, God, you guide me. You help me to catch the next breath and the one after that and the one after that. And I will survive. So... That's the first way transformation works is the renewing of our 
minds. The next way that transformation works is that transformation works in washing us pure. And I don't just say washing us clean. I mean washing us pure. There's something to be said about coming to Christ and saying, you know, I've done all these bad things. I've done all this stuff. It's embarrassing. I don't want anyone to know about it. And so I come to you and I ask for forgiveness, God, and you take all those things from my past and they're gone. And, and I no longer carry that guilt. And it feels wonderful. And I know that many of you have that experience in your life. And I rejoice in that. But here's the thing. That is taken away. The past is dealt with. But some of the patterns of our behavior and some of the patterns of our thought and some of the ways that we have gone about life are really hard to undo. And they are not clean and they are not pure. And so that washing is more than just wiping off the countertop. This is about real purity purification. And real purification is not easy. Now, I grew up in mining communities. And and so as a kid, I lived in a coal mining town. And then as I moved into my high school years, we got to move into gold mining. And then uh, just not too far from us, farther down the road were diamond mines. But my high school years were in the gold mines. And it was during those years that the, the price of gold really climbed. And so those gold mines went into high gear and they were digging out as much gold ore from the ground as they could. And almost all of my classmates in high school, their parents worked in those gold mines. And I got to know a little bit about the industry. And so we got to know how that worked and how they brought out the gold ore. It wasn't in gold nuggets like it was found sometimes in streams here. It's in a reef of rock underground. And so they bring out tons and tons of rock and they crush it and they pulverize it into powder. And then they take that powder and they dump it into these huge, what look like big industrial cauldrons. And they heat it up. They heat it to intense pressures. And what happens is a lot of the stuff that's in the rock just burns up and it's gone. And there's some other stuff in there and that, that, that is not gold and it doesn't just you know, turn into smoke and ash, but it, it, it comes to the top kind of like cream on milk. And, and there's, but it's not pretty. It's this kind of a brownish, ugly stuff on top of the molten gold and it's called slag. Slag which I think is a great word because nobody wants it. It's just impurity. And then once they've melted this whole cauldron, they have a system of, of, of a waterfall that's a series of tears and they will turn the big cauldron and they'll pour the molten, gore, uh, molten gold and the slag. They'll pour it out and it will go down. And as it runs down, that stuff on top is lighter than the gold. And so it goes down on the uh, first, and it reaches a big pan at the bottom on the floor, and that's just slag. But the farther up you go in that, those waterfall steps, those little terraces of ingots, the purer the gold is. You see, pure gold is incredibly heavy, and it sinks to the bottom when it's melted, and the impurities rise to the top, and they just run right off the top. And so they will pour these and then they let them cool because, you know, this is metal. And when metal is melted down to where you can actually pour it, it's intensely hot. It cools and then they they knock them out of the ingot molds. And here you have these big bars of gold and you go, wow, that's cool. Now it looks like gold. It's not just rock anymore. And they would tell us that at about that 
stage, even the ingots up at the top of the waterfall of terraces are only about 75% pure. And so they would send those gold bars off to what was known as the Johannesburg Gold Refinery. And in that place, they would take all those gold bars and they'd heat them up again, even hotter, and they'd get more of that stuff out. And then as they poured it back out, they would pour it down and they would get more out. They'd they'd scrape it off the top. And then they had a final process that was an acid bath. And that acid bath, you see, what would happen is the impurities would come to the outside of the gold ingot and that acid bath would just burn off all the stuff on the outside. And what you were left with was then this gold bar and they would polish it up a little bit, not with wax or anything. They would just take very fine, uh, like sandpaper, and they would polish it up. And it was brilliant and beautiful. And at that point, it was about 99.8% pure. Pure gold. And one of those gold ingots, which is almost impossible for a man to pick up, they're incredibly heavy, At that point in time, they told us that one of those gold ingots was worth about $250,000. Now, the price of gold has gone up a lot since then. And I think about that, and I think about the process of walking with Christ, and I realize that in life, walking with Christ means that there are times when we go through intense, intense opposition and trial. And it feels like we're going through a fire. But when we do that, it helps us to figure out which things have been brought into our lives that are not necessary. They're just extraneous stuff. They're stuff we packed into our lives that we could live without. And and in our time of trial, we tend to push those things out and hold on to the things that really matter. It's slag that just gets pushed out of our lives and we go, you know, I don't need that then. There's nothing like going through intense trial to help us identify the things that we've placed in our lives that God did not place there. And he burns off. He doesn't just, you know, hey, I'll just wipe you down here a little bit. He burns off impurities in our lives. And then he goes to work polishing us, smoothing out the rough areas and bringing out the beauty of the brilliance of who he created us to be. He washes us pure, not just clean, but pure. Ephesians 2.26, sorry, 5.26 says that Christ has done this to make his bride, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. The next is that we are transformed by the changing of our heart. It's not just about changing our mind. It's not just about changing our patterns of behavior. But God does a work of changing what's inside of us. He does a work of changing what is hurt, what is fearful, and changing it into something that looks like faith and peace. He does a work of helping us heal from the woundedness of the past. Heal from errors that we have fallen in love with. And changes our heart. 
This isn't just about having a different understanding. This isn't just about having a drown-proof Christianity if I keep my mind fixed on him. This is about taking those things that are felt to the very core of our being and rewiring them and transforming them. Romans 2.29 says, No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. You see, having a changed heart is not only possible, but that's part of the transformed life in Christ. The fourth piece of how God works transformation is that he gives joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit to us. Now, one of the mistakes we often make is we often think that, that joy and happiness are the same thing. You know, when joy, joy is God makes us laugh because everything good comes into our lives. Some of you have heard me say this before, but happiness is always connect to, connected to happenings. So it's, we're happy because of what happens around us. So some of us are happy now because we can hear the, the rain on the roof and we're thinking about our garden or our lawn that's going to be nice and green, and that makes us happy. Now for some of us, we're not happy because the rain outside means that work isn't going to be great tomorrow and we're going to have to go through mud and things like that. That's just a happening. Joy abides regardless of circumstances. Joy is possible no matter what's happening around us. Joy is something internal, whereas happenings are external. And God's work of transformation is to do something internal that brings a joyful heart where there's been a bitterness, where what's internal has been negative. This is where I think Harry got hung up, is he never experienced the joy of his salvation. And it doesn't, it doesn't sound like much, but when you've seen somebody that has, it redefines them. It changes who they are. I'm at that point in my life where I'm doing a lot of reminiscing. I'm to the age where I realize there's probably more behind me than ahead of me in terms of years. And uh, I, I am fortunate enough to live in a, in a time when uh, we've got social media and I'm connected to people I've known for all my life, even though they're all around the world. And they tend to remind me of things online. They post old photographs and things like that. And, and uh, recently, I was sitting down with my sister and she had been, she's been going through some things with my parents and she went through some old photographs and she said, I have something to show you. And she brought in a series of little snapshots, black and white snapshots. And we were thumbing through different people and, and there was a picture of a black man that I grew up knowing. His name was Titus, Pastor Titus Mabia. He was a pastor that worked with my dad and, and the church that he pastored was only about five or six miles from our house. And so we were there a lot. We would go there frequently and see him and he would uh, welcome us. Sometimes dad would preach for him and they would go, dad and he would go together into the coal mines and, and work with the men that were there that were migrant laborers. And, and Pastor Titus, one thing about him 
he had infectious joy. And so as I looked at that photograph, I, I just, I smiled and I go, oh my goodness. And, and it was from his younger days. I mean, this is, I remember when he was an old man and this was, was his younger days. So I would have been a little kid. And, and I sat there looking at that and I smiled and I, I said to my sister Jenny, I said, you remember how we would sit there in church out at that Black Hill church, a little a little block building with a concrete floor and wooden benches, and, and he would sing. He would lead singing. He would just start singing. They had no instruments. And he would lead singing, and as he sang, he would hold his Bible in one hand, and with the other hand, he would just slap the Bible in rhythm and kind of clap, and that, that big old leather-bound Bible he had would just thump, thump. It was like a bass drum. And he would sing and he would walk back and forth as he sang and the people would sing with him. And, and I, I said, you know, I was blessed as a kid to know that here was a guy who had met and encountered Jesus and was changed to become a man who was just filled with joy. Now what's remarkable about that is Pastor Titus was born and raised in the country of Mozambique. He was living in South Africa where we had assigned him to that church. But he was born and raised in Mozambique. And so that meant that he was born underneath the oppression of Portuguese colonials who really deeply mistreated the locals, the the nationals there. And so he grew up knowing that these Portuguese officials at any time could make life really miserable. And he grew up knowing that there were white people who did not like him because then he moved out of that system when he was appointed to pastor the church up there at Black Hill. He was appointed in South Africa in the height of apartheid. And so he knew there were laws that restricted where he went and who he spent time with. And he knew that there were laws in place that if he stepped out of line just a little bit, he would go to prison without much of a hearing. But that didn't stop him from walking back and forth on that little concrete platform, singing at the top of his lungs, thumping his Bible like a bass drum, and leading the people and singing the praises of God. And and I looked at that photograph and I was reminded, well, God, if Titus Mabia can have your joy, then the things that come my way are trivial by comparison. And I can have just as much joy. Romans 15, 13 tells us this. I pray, this is Paul praying for the Romans. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, if we're going to be that spotless church, if we're going to be transformed and changed and become actually a bride that that makes people look and smile and a bride that's attractive then we've got to be changed ourselves. And changing ourselves and rearranging our lives looks a little different to the way we've done it in the past. One of the things I grew up with, and it's not necessarily bad, but I think it probably enculturated us with some ideas that were not so helpful. But as a kid, and I know some of you probably experienced this too, as a kid I went to church, we had Sunday school, and, and if you were really good at coming regularly, you got awards. And so if you didn't miss very many Sundays, they'd give you an award. 
And one of those awards was a perfect attendance award if you didn't miss a Sunday at all. And, and I remember, and I was just talking to some of my cousins at our family reunion this summer, because we were talking about that perfect attendance award that you got at the end of the year for not missing any Sundays of Sunday school. And one of my cousins said, you know, it's kind of interesting, us as free Methodists, one of the things I remember is we weren't allowed to wear rings because that was showy and ostentatious and we needed to be simple people and humble people. But we will give you a little shiny brass perfect attendance button that you put on there. And they said that bred more pride than any wedding ring. And I, when my cousin said that, I thought, oh my goodness. Ooh, you just kind of hit where it hurts. For my family and our background, that was a big deal. You know, I could get a perfect attendance award and everybody will know I'm a better Christian than everybody else. But here's the thing. We could be just like Harry. We could be there every Sunday. We could have perfect attendance and still be really messed up and not at all attractive and, and of very little value in drawing other people to Christ. So a spotless church isn't a church that just has perfect attendance. So if you're listening on the internet today or uh, tomorrow when it comes out on the podcast, you're okay if you miss Sunday. You're not okay if you miss the encounter with the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. You see, it's not that we live up to rules, but it's that we are moved by God. Francis Chan, in his book, Forgotten God, talks about the Holy Spirit in these terms. He says, you know, we fall in love with Jesus and we love the idea of the Father God, creator of the world. But we are resistant to the idea that God would be inside of me, always coaching, always guiding, saying, hey, would you do this? No. Not really interested. But that's where the church becomes beautiful. That's where the bride becomes glorious, robed in white linens, when the church welcomes the presence of God to move us moment by moment under his direction. A spotless church is a church that listens to and responds to God's urging all the time. So I wonder what's a spotless you look like. And some of you might be going, oh my goodness, you have no idea. Well, there's a lot of work to do. But the Holy Spirit works in us. The Holy Spirit changes and transforms and shapes us when we listen to and respond to him. And so I would just challenge you, if we think we want our church to become a place that's beautiful, I know we want, the parking lot looks great, doesn't it? It's gorgeous. And our building is something that we are proud of. It's great. God has blessed us and we've put together a nice facility. And, and our programming is really good. What we're going to do with kids and, and what Linnea is going to do with the teens this fall, it's going to be exciting and it's going, to, it's going to draw people in. But I'm telling you, the thing that makes us spotlessly attractive is when the Holy Spirit is at work within us and God is transforming us because people are watching and longing for that very thing in their own lives. That's how the Spirit works in us. And so my question is to direct that at you particularly this morning. You individually, where is his Spirit at work in you? What is God speaking into you? And how is that challenging you? 
band come back up here. We're going to sing in closing. But I want to suggest that some of us have been listening and we've been hearing God. And we are overwhelmed and intimidated by what he says. But I am confident that when God speaks that way to his people, he does it with more than one of us. And so when we start to listen together in the Spirit's voice, we look at each other and go, did you hear it that way too? Is it similar to what you're hearing? And then we can come together and say, oh, okay. Then this is of God and not just me with some wild ideas. So next week, we're going to think about how we do that together and God's guidance and hear his voice. Let's stand together. Or no, let's not. Something's